Hey, welcome to the CMO Whisper Show. I'm your host, Steve Olensky. Part marketing practitioner, part ad agency veteran, part journalist. I was a writer for Forbes for 10 years. I've had so many insightful conversations over the years with business leaders, to athletes, to celebrities, to, of course, CMOs. The only difference now is instead of sharing those insights through written form, I'm doing it this way. My guest today is Evan Green. Evan's the former CMO of the Recording Academy, which you probably know better as the Grammy Awards. Evan and I have known each other well over 10 years, and we had a truly fascinating conversation. We talked about everything from making the complex look simple, not an easy task, what initially drew him to the world of marketing in the first place, and if he was ever starstruck during his time at the Grammy Awards. Just wait until you hear who sat right next to him at a rehearsal. Here's my conversation with Evan Green. Steve, how are you? It's great to talk to you. It is truly my honor, my brother. We go back a long ways, which means we're getting old. Yeah. There's a question I ask every single one of my guests, at least the ones with a marketing background. What's the difference between marketing and advertising? Well, look, I think advertising is a function of marketing, right? Marketing creates the wheel and advertising, like a lot of other components, is one spoke in the wheel. But you need to build the right marketing strategy, brand strategy, communication strategy, go-to-market strategy, all of those blend together. And then executionally, you need to be able to define that so that the outcome is great advertising, the outcome is great PR, the outcome is great connection and resonance with culture. So I see advertising, while critical, it's a function of the overall marketing mix. Marketing is not a function of the advertising mix. Advertising is a function of the marketing mix. Got it. Thank you. Okay. Seamless segue. Pop culture intersection. You were at studios like Disney and Sony, where among other things, you oversaw global partner strategy for some of Hollywood's biggest film franchises like Spider-Man, Men in Black, and Charlie's Angels. Incredible. What was that time like? Well, I think my career has really, in a lot of ways, been defined by relationships. And I, I think relationships are the currency, especially in the marketing space, that a lot of our careers are, are built on. And one of the things that was most valuable for me at the studios is I was kind of navigating that map, so to speak, or the, the tightrope, I should say, between studio executives, filmmakers like directors and producers and actors and corporate America, right? Building strategies to align brands. First of all, from a marketing and a, and a brand positioning standpoint, we had to create permission for brands to align with movies. We didn't want it to look like someone just wrote a check and by virtue of having a checkbook, they got to align with the movie. We wanted to create integration from a brand narrative standpoint. Then we had to make sure that we coordinated all of the different arms and legs of the run-up as well as the campaign with the filmmakers, the studio execs, and the, the, the brand partners to make sure that what we delivered was something that was on brand, that was effective, that delivered against KPI. And at the end of the day, you know, the day or the week after the movie opened, it was so successful that people wanted to do business together again. So 
walk us through, like pick one of these, you know, what were some of the challenges of bringing all these people together? Because I would imagine there's a lot of egos involved. Well, there's egos involved. And, and from, a, from a studio standpoint, what a studio is looking for is to leverage and harness brand advertising spend so they can enhance the marketing and promotional reach of the film. The brand is looking to leverage the IP and the sort of built-in cultural awareness of the film. And, you know, the filmmakers are looking for something that's going to help make their film successful. You know, it's a negotiation like anything, and you have to understand what the person on the other side of the table is looking for. And as the representative of the film, so to speak, I was, you know, on, on the studio side, I had to make sure that, that I positioned this in a way that felt that, that not just felt like, but that was a win for all involved, right? So whether it was brands doing a global campaign around Spider-Man, whether it was, you know, creating an opportunity to help launch and sort of amplify the excitement for a movie like Stuart Little, which wasn't an easy sell, right? At the time, you know, the, a story about a family that adopts a mouse not the most, you know, not, not the most compelling film yeah. just conceptually. Right. And so it was really about how do we get these brands excited? How do we, how do we get them to see something that other people aren't seeing? And now you're seeing, you know, an evolution of that with the massive success of movies like Barbie that have tons of marketing and promotional partners. And I think if you take what I said earlier about what each party is looking to get out of it, you can apply that to some of today's big event films. And it makes sense. You, you mentioned Barbie, and I would be remiss if I didn't get more of a deeper uh, dive into your thoughts on just the phenomenon that it's become. From the marketing, I read one report that said the amount of marketing spend is higher than the actual movie cost. I don't know if it's true, but still it's something to think about. And to see what it's become, kind of compare and contrast to when you were doing this and what, what is now possible. Well, listen, back in the day, you know, I was working on movies that at the time were, were among the biggest in Hollywood history. I think, you know, box office numbers have increased over time. I think you have to, you have to give credit where credit is due. The filmmakers and, uh, you know, the marketing folks at Barbie, they created the right vibe. Look, Barbie could have gone horribly wrong if they, you know, hadn't kind of crafted it with the sensibilities that they had. And I think that the, the beginning of that was the launch of what the marketing plan and marketing strategy and brand strategy and kind of brand book looked like. And then I think when you started to hand it to, brands. Once the, the film started to be embraced by culture, it started to build on itself. And the idea that its signature pink became ownable by so many brands, it, it really just lent itself to an explosion of brand marketing partners. So I think, I think they did a great job of getting that boulder up to the top of the hill and letting it start to roll down the other side. And then once it started to roll, I think everybody wanted a piece of it. I completely agree with everything you just said. And I also think kudos to them for not overthinking a lot of this, right? And kind of keeping it simple. Oh, I, I, I would beg to differ. I, I think that they overthought it a lot. And I think mm. oftentimes the things that look the simplest are the things that took the most amount of thought and sort of agonizing, you know, evalu evaluation. I mean, that's kind of, <laughs> in a lot of ways, 
that's the holy grail of marketing to make mm-hmm. them really complicated look simple. So that's true. I, I'm sure that there was a lot of agonized discussion about what direction to go before they, they hit market. Yeah, it's a good point that what the public sees versus what happens behind closed doors. Right. So after you left Sony, you joined the Recording Academy, which is much better known, I think, to most people as the Grammys, Yep. where you served as their CMO. And over the next 16 plus years, you built one of the world's most recognized and coveted brands. And as chief steward of the Grammy brand, you led cross-functional teams with expertise in brand strategy, advertising, Marcoms, analytics, integrated partnerships, there's that word again, to really innovate one of music's most vital organizations. During your time there, yearly revenue increased over 800%. Let me repeat that. During Evan's time there, yearly revenue increased over 800%. You established a worldwide licensing program You utilized dynamic, leading-edge social media. Live Grammy-branded concerts were built. And the Grammys were consistently recognized for marketing innovation and creativity with winning awards like Grand Clio, Cannes Line, and Reggie's, and on and on and on. So my first question, having your time there in the Grammy Awards and the Grammys in the Recording Academy, other than what I just read off in terms of dollars and awards, what are you most proud of? I'll tell you, you know... I'll go back to something that, that we just talked about, which was making the complex look simple. There were a lot of things about the Grammys that over my time there seemed like they were intuitive and obvious. But when I got to the Academy, the Grammys were really in decline in 2003. They were routinely referred to as the Grannies. I was the first person at the organization, believe it or not, to ever have a marketing title. There was, there was no marketing being done. And the brand was really struggling. And so the thing that I'm most proud of is the kind of thoughtful, strategic, sequential plan and roadmap that was developed by identifying what was good about the academy, what was good about the brand, where the opportunities to be better were, and then put together, you know, a a one, three, five, 10 year roadmap in terms of how to reinvent rebuild, reignite, and amplify a brand that ultimately is one of the most, it represents the Recording Academy, which is one of the most vital organizations in music. And so I think, you know, the way I look at revenue, there's a lot of revenue generated, but revenue was a positive consequence of doing all the smart brand work up front. So the thing that I'm most proud of, I would say, is building the right narrative, galvanizing not only all of our internal employees and, uh, you know, and stakeholders, which are the music makers themselves. And once that starts to happen, it starts to resonate with the general public and the music fan. The thing that we always had that, that I wanted to play up is that people knew that the Grammys were the biggest and the best, but they didn't really know why. And ultimately, it was because the artists cared more about the Grammys. And the artists cared more about the Grammys because the Grammys were anchored by the Recording Academy, which was an important organization in music that supported artists and and advocated for artists' rights and, and intellectual property protection. And so I feel like being able to bring all those constituents together in a way that made everybody really proud and 
really connected at a deep visceral level, you know, is, is one of the things I look, I look back on with, with the most amount of pride. Yeah. One of the things that, and if you recall when we first met and I was writing for Forbes and I, I ended up writing two articles about the brand. And the first piece was, I forget the title, but it was something along the lines of what does a brand like the Grammys do when it's not quote Grammy time? And yeah. that, that was fascinating to me where I learned all about the music cares, right? The philanthropic side and all the other projects that you and the entire team and the organization are working on all year, let alone during Grammy time. So that was very enlightening to me. Yeah. I mean, listen, one of the things that was important to me to recognize was there were a handful of really iconic events that happened every year, right? The Grammys, let's say the Super Bowl, you know, there's a number of other big sporting events. And the thing that, that I realized early on that they had that we didn't is we had, we all had the big event, but they had a season and they had a run up and they had the ability for people to become passionate and invested in the teams, the players, the stories, the intrigue. And so what became really important for us is to build that season and to build that opportunity for people to stay connected all throughout the year so that it wasn't like, you know, when the lights went down on the Grammy stage, people didn't hear from us for another 10 and a half months until we started promoting the next show, which was very transactional and frankly disrespectful to the, to, to the music fans. So it really became about how do we speak authentically? How do we respect the audience? And how do we give music fans the opportunity to connect and engage all year long? So there's only so many brands, obviously, like the Grammys. And most of my listeners and subscribers are CMOs, marketing leaders of more, quote, I'll use the word, traditional brands. Traditional yeah. only in the context versus a brand like the Grammys. Because again, there's only so many like that. I'm curious, and I know they would be too, is how, how would you say it's different leading a marketing organization of a brand like the Grammys versus like a CPG brand, for example? I know there's similarities, right? But what are some of the challenges? You know, is it, and I know you, you've never been in that role, so it's a bit of a hypothetical. But again, the majority of my listeners and subscribers are going to be CMOs, leaders, marketing, and someone from those more traditional brands. So kind of compare and contrast a little if you can. Well, I think there are there are some differences, but I think there's a lot of similarities. At the end of the day, marketing is a discipline. And at the end of the day, marketing is about taking the product you have, translating it into an idea, increasing its value, and delivering it to a broad constituency such that it drives a desire to connect, to purchase, to acquire, and to develop loyalty. And so... While the Grammys are not necessarily a CPG brand, a lot of the mechanics are the same. We have to determine and understand who our audience is. We have to understand what's good about us and what's challenging about us. We have to understand what we stand for, what the vibe, the tone, the spirit is. We have to figure out how to go to market and increase value, not only perceived value, but actual value. We have to be authentic. We have to develop loyalty and the loyal and loyalty really is the, 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 the Holy grail. And ultimately, you know, look, the Grammys did sell 
products. I mean, there there were physical products that the Grammy sold and generated revenue from. We sold for many, many years a Grammy compilation CD, which was mm-hmm. a physical product at retail and at digital. So I think a lot. it's not just selling an idea, it's connecting, it's figuring out how to connect with your your core constituency and figuring out how to t- how to deliver them value. I mean, we we increased sales of the Grammy nominee CD significantly based on the brand work that we were doing, and there was also you know there were there were explorations and opportunities to sell merchandise, and and so there is a consumer products component to everything that we did, mm-hmm. and and the corresponding customer experience. Sure. And it's not just it's not just creating a one-off. It's creating that point of connection so that, you know, people want to seek you out and continue to be part of an ongoing conversation and dialogue. Yeah, exactly. I mentioned something to you before we started recording that I had told a few folks that I'm speaking to you today and and they said, Oh, you must have a ton of questions. And I said, Give me, you know, what would you want to know? The number one question people were asking me to ask you went on Grammy night or the night before Clive Davis, you know, that famous party. Is there one artist or artist that you yourself were just starstruck by that you got to meet? Well, I, I shook a lot of hands, as you can imagine. I mean, for me, the ultimate is Paul McCartney. Mm. And I just remember one of the coolest experiences of that role was being being able to be on the floor of the arena, which used to be Staples Center, now is Crypto.com Arena, and watching the greatest artists in the world perform and rehearse and work out their performances that they intended to deliver to a global audience in the hundreds of millions in the coming days. And so sometimes, you know, you could take a break and just sit in the seats in the middle of the arena and I sat down and I looked over to my left and sitting right next to me was Paul McCartney, mm. who, who decided he wanted to be a fan for a second as well and watch the other performers, you know, rehearse. And so, you know, we had a very brief conversation, but, you know, there, there, there's a number of experiences like that. But when you ask about the one or, you know, the, the one person or the, you know, what's memorable, Mm-hmm. Being able to sit next to a beetle was, was, was pretty <laughs> that's hard to be, that's hard to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't even begin to top that. Excuse me. Uh, wow. Okay. So music obviously evokes emotion. And what we do now at System One, we measure emotion in advertising and marketing and, and the effect it has on the potential short-term, long-term success of a given TV commercial, for example. Talk a little bit about emotion in advertising and marketing, and even from an agnostic, not even from a Grammy Awards, just from your CMO lens, what brands are doing, what should they do? Is it a fine line when you tap into emotions when it comes to marketing and advertising? Just give me your your thoughts as you're hearing this. Look, I think at the end of the day, marketing has changed a lot. It's a lot more data-driven than it used to be. It's not so much coming up with the the one great idea like a Don Draper that is going to just, you know, galvanize everybody. But the thing about marketing is that, and the thing that always drew me to marketing is it's about storytelling and people are drawn to a good story, right? Yep. That's why people are starting to go back to the theater again. 
Yep. You can tell a good story in a 500-page novel. You can tell a good story in a two-and-a-half-hour, three-act feature film. You can tell a good story in a 30-minute sitcom. You can tell a good story in a 30-second spot. You can tell a good story in a single frame if it's done right. Yep. And I think that the key to emotional connection is telling that story in an authentic way that becomes visceral, that connects. And that to me has really always been the beauty of marketing. And that's always been kind of the purity of marketing. I know that nowadays, you know, there's far more ways to reach people and people are, are living in different circles and concentric circles and smaller pockets. And no, there is no one size fits all, nor should there be. But I do think on an emotional level, really just telling a good authentic story will connect. And if you can connect, you're able to garner attention. And if you garner attention and trust that leads to loyalty and loyalty yeah. really is the Holy grail it in is. marketing. It, it really is. It really is. Let me pivot to a pivot. And what I mean by that is in your career, you have pivoted from different roles and there's a value there, right? of the value of the pivot, right? If you will, what is that? What is the value of, of pivoting? What value did you take from it? What value would others like you and, and whether it's your starting out middle of your career, senior, the value of the pivot, what does that mean to you? Well, from my standpoint, the value of the pivot is taking all that I've learned over the course of my career and harnessing that and channeling that towards what's next, right? I think we all have chapters in our lives. I think we all have pages in our lives that ultimately turn and, you know, you grow and you evolve from role to role. And for me, I had evolved every, every role that I had taken kind of took me one step further on that proverbial ladder. And after being a CMO for 16 years, I realized that I had a lot more to give and a lot more to do and a lot more to accomplish. And so for me, pivoting was, okay, taking what I have from being involved in and sort of living at the center of pop culture for, for a few decades, taking that and then harnessing it and applying it towards new challenges and new opportunities. Because I really look at my my passion, my skill, my sort of superpower as being able to tell a good story, to build brands and to build businesses. And I never looked at, at marketing as just, as, as just, you know, marketing and selling a product or selling a brand. I really looked at it as being an integral part of driving and scaling that business. Okay. So you just mentioned your superpower and I want to get your thoughts on how you use your superpower for new opportunities, number one. But number two is then how, what do you say to other people? Because we all have a superpower. I firmly believe that. You know, how, how, to, how, to, how do you find it and then use it? But start with yourself, with your superpower. How are you using it for new opportunities? Well, a lot of the things that I've done in my past are very, they're, they're broad, they're varied, but they're, they're also very, kind of specific and tactical. They're strategic and they're also tactical. And I think, you know, marketing in and of itself is a discipline and there's, there's components that can be applied to various sort of elements of that discipline. So 
at least for me, you know, I was involved in, before I was at, at, at Disney, I worked at a brand identity firm, right? And so, you know, I've always been interested in marketing, brand identity, storytelling, et cetera. And that helped prepare me for my role at Disney. My role at Disney helped prepare me for my role at Sony. My role at Sony and Disney helped prepare me for the Recording Academy. And over the years, I've been involved in a lot of things that are very, like I said, they're specific and then they're also very diverse. So I believe that that experience all came together and and sort of created layers and nuance that allowed me to look at new opportunities and bring real value, whether it was in the consumer product space, whether it was in the in the sports space, whether it was in the you know the technology and AR space. I mean, I, I just find that being proactive about surfacing new opportunities and driving forward is so much more so much more beneficial than being reactive and just sort of kind of waiting for for the puzzle pieces to 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 put themselves together. Yeah. How how does someone find their superpower, do you think? I, I you know, it's a it's a good question and I really think it just requires some self-reflection and figuring out what really drives you. Looking at your career and looking at the years and looking at the things that you've really gravitated to and the things that have, that you've connected with, what are those things that you find yourself passionate about? And then start to unpack that. And I think what you'll find is where your passion lies is also is also very, very frequently where your strongest skill sets reside. Excellent. Exactly. Let me ask you a, a, a general question about the role of the CMO. And you're an anomaly in many ways, but you're an anomaly because of how long you've stayed in the role of the CMO. You know this, the CMO in general, on average, has the shortest tenure in the C-suite. Right. So you're very much an anomaly, but agnostic of your experience, why? Like, why is it just in general, why is the CMO role so short? I think it's 36 months or maybe four years, something like that. I think that... In a lot of ways, marketing can be misunderstood. I think that oftentimes from the outside, marketing seems easier than it actually is. I think it doesn't always seem that it's as complicated a discipline as it, as it can be, as thoughtful a discipline, as, a, as strategic a discipline. And look, everybody's got an opinion, right? Just to make a quick comparison, no disrespect at all, but if you look at the role of a chief financial officer versus a chief marketing officer, most people realize they don't understand finance very well. Mm-hmm. And finance often happens you know, behind a curtain by people who are, who are experts at accounting and finance. Marketing happens in a very public way. And so whatever happens in, in public view drives opinion. So there's people that say, I liked that. I didn't like that. Sales went up because of that. Sales didn't go up because of that. So I think marketing just by its very nature is sort of galvanizing or uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, It's it's polarizing. Polarizing. Thank you. it, It allows people to form an opinion and those opinions 
can be very strongly held. And, you know, I think when everything's going great and sales are going through the roof, you, you generally don't get rid of your, your, your head of marketing. Mm-hmm. But when there's a lull, everybody's look, it's like art in a way, right? You see a piece of art and everyone's got an opinion. You like it, you hate it. You didn't like this color. You didn't like that color or whatever. And so I think you're always under a microscope in that way. I, I love the comparison to the CFO because <laughs> I've yet to meet any, anybody who go, I want to look at your spreadsheets because I have some thoughts on <laughs> like that kind of stuff. It just doesn't happen. Who's had the biggest impact on your career and why? That's a really good question. I don't know that any one person has had an impact on my career, but, but I took a class when I was in high school um, that always stayed with me and it was called Propaganda in the mass media. And it started with propaganda films in World War I that you literally had to go to the movie theater to see. And it evolved to modern day advertising, or at the time, modern day advertising. And the thing that always struck me is the idea that you can shift public opinion. You can create a narrative that can shift and direct public opinion towards one thing or another. And it, it struck me because We talked about everything from politics, right? Directing people to a particular viewpoint or politician to individual products. And the product could be, the product is the same. The thing that you're selling is the same, but the way that you position it can have a massive impact on how it's perceived and how the message is received and, and, and how it's interpreted, which then forms people's opinions about whatever the thing is. And so that was probably one of the biggest catalysts to me deciding I wanted to get involved in the marketing space. Mm. It's fascinating. Really interesting. So you can't see this because we're not recording. We're doing video. We're doing audio only. But behind me, and Evan can see them, I have an album wall. Huge music fan, very eclectic. You can see the albums, Evan. I mean, I have everything from Sinatra to the Stones to the OJs, right? A lot of different musical tastes. And one of my favorite, I just think music connects you know, so many people, pop culture especially in general, as you know. But one of my, my favorite song of all time is a song called Lean On Me by Bill Withers. It's from the 70s, and you probably know it. But is there one song or an album in general, that really resonates with you? Are there lyrics from a song? You know, what is it if I say, I don't want to, I don't want to ask you to pick your favorite song because it's a little hard sometimes unless you have one. And then why? I have a very eclectic taste. I like everything from, you know, Latin music to jazz to, you know, to, to classic rock to, to hip hop. But I have to say the album that really, I think, touched me early on that is probably one of, if not my favorite album is Pink Floyd's The Wall mm-hmm. because I had heard a, a presentation many years ago by Sir George Martin, who was the Beatles producer. And he was talking about his relationship with John Lennon and how John Lennon wanted to paint pictures with his words and make you feel like you were there. And the story that's told in the wall, I just, I've, I don't know that there's ever been another album like it. 
Mm. And I just became obsessed with it when I was in college. And I, I, I just think it's brilliant. And I think that it, 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 you know, from one of the themes of this conversation has been storytelling. Yep. The story that that album tells, I think is very powerful and it's, it's stayed with me to this day. So speaking of storytelling and audio and sounds, I have this phrase that I just kind of landed on, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, the sound of marketing or what does marketing sound like? What comes to mind when I say that? <laughs> it, it's funny you say that because I think marketing can be chaotic sometimes and marketing can also be beautiful sometimes. And if it's done right, and, and frankly, if it's done right, the chaos turns into beauty. So I don't know that I have a particular sound, but I think from an analogy standpoint, it's orchestrated, mm. right? There, there's an orchestra behind it. I like it. It's interesting. Yeah. All the pieces moving together in harmony, right? Pun intended. Okay. One last thing before we wrap up this unbelievably incredible conversation with Evan Green. What are you doing now? What are you looking for uh, in your next opportunity? You know, what, what's going on currently? What are you looking for in the future? The thing that really excites me these days is the idea of being able to take my experience and skill set and apply that to new opportunities. And what I mean by that is I'm doing some really interesting fractional CMO work these days. And I find that I can bring a tremendous amount of value to brand and, and, and client partners on a fractional basis. I enjoy that. I, I think it's, it's very satisfying. It's fulfilling. I think for my, for my clients, it's more economical. And I think the results are, are, are terrific. I think it gives the opportunity to bring someone at a very senior level into an organization at, frankly, a more, more realistic economic level. And the value, I think, is, is exponential. So I, I look for brands that I can and companies that I can help grow and expand and scale. And I love the idea of helping people build their business. And so for me, fractional CMO work has, be, has been very rewarding. And, you know, I, I, I'm always open and looking for, for opportunities to, you know, to help companies grow and build and expand and scale revenue. One last thing. Where can people learn more about Evan Green and contact you and reach you and all that good stuff? Easiest place is on LinkedIn, Evan Green, G-R-E-E-N-E. -E -E. You can also email me, Evan Green 731 at Gmail. And, you know, look, I, I'm a big believer in the power of relationships. And I also am a big advocate for the idea that it always helps have more friends out there. So, always looking to continue to make more connections. Yeah. And if anybody also wants to reach Evan, they can come to me and I will connect you. Well, that wraps up another episode of the CMO Whisperer Show. I want to thank my guest, Evan Green, for an absolutely enthralling conversation. Every time we get together, it's, it's just a, it's a lot of fun. And I learned so much from Evan. Evan, thank you so much for being here today. Anytime, brother. It's always good to chat with you. Look forward to, look forward to seeing you soon. Well, that wraps up another episode of the CMO Whisperer Show. I hope you shared this episode with your friends. And if you have not already, please subscribe to be kept up to date on all the latest episodes. And if you're so inclined, leave me a review 
on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you. 